0: to Gaywire on CJSR, your homegrown source for lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer news, culture, stories, and events from Edmonton and beyond. Hey there, you're listening to Gaywire on CJSR 88.5 FM. I'm Alexa. Unfortunately, JD's not here today, but apparently JD and TJ, uh, our two other hosts, will be back next week, and we'll say something about the fact that they're named JD and TJ, because that's just too good. All right, so on this uh, week's show, we're only doing two things. The first is we had the opportunity to attend a talk uh, last week, and we recorded it for the show. Um, It was called A Brief and Unreliable History. Um, It was a reading in progress by Ted Kerr and Amy Fung, and there was a discussion after from CJSR's own uh, Chris uh, Phillips. So... We're going to listen to the talk part of it because the question period after is a bit hard to follow on radio. Um, And I'm going to give a description of exactly what the talk was about and everything that uh, uh, they discussed. And then in the second part of the show, we're going to be uh, discussing more of the details of the series of murders um, that happened in Toronto's gay village. Uh, So there's new information coming out every day, it seems, um, and we're going to be trying to piece together exactly what's going on and um, what might be happening um, with other cases and in the future.
1: Imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense. Once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with the pain. James Baldwin.
0: Play records on the radio would you like
1: to
2: broadcast your thoughts to a huge audience over the airwaves almost anyone can volunteer
0: at cjsr edmonton's community radio station we will train you how to sound keen on the microphone you can learn how to play records compact discs and the exciting new mp3 the format of tomorrow Or you can train to be a big city news reporter or produce jocular commercials just like this one. It's as easy as one, two, three. Call 780-492-2577 or electronic mail. Volunteer at CJSR.com. Consider your exciting future at CJSR today. Girl, it's your time. Don't ever ever change your mind Cause you're
1: mine This is Vivek Shreya, author days of days Even This Page in is in White time. and She of the Mountains and one half of the All music duo Too Attached. You're listening to Gay Wire on CJSR.
2: I'm never gonna hide
1: you Never gonna fight you again
0: Not for any man So, as I said, we're going to start off the show with a recording of a talk uh, that was given last week called A Brief and Unreliable History. Um, It was a reading of Works in Progress by Ted Kerr and Amy Fung, and the discussion was led by CJSR's Chris Chang-Yan Phillips. Um, So, the uh, sort of idea behind the talk uh, was that writers Amy Fung and Ted Kerr uh, returned to Edmonton from Toronto and New York respectively to research and write different books that trace their respective journeys through the world of art and activism. For both, Edmonton plays a fundamental and foundational role in each uh, respective writer's approach to their prose on the subjects of HIV, colonialism and identity formation. And so for this event, the two friends and writers read from their texts and programs and shared a discussion about growing up in the city, how civic history impacts memory, health, and the body. And then City of Edmonton historian, laureate Chris chang yen Phillips, uh, moderated the talk and brought his own research and experiences into the discussion. So to give you an idea of the uh, quick sort of bios of both writers, um, Amy Fung is a writer, researcher, and curator born in Kowloon, Hong Kong. And currently based in Toronto, Canada, she received her Master's in English and Film Studies from the University of Alberta in 2009, with specialization in criticism, poetics, and the moving image. Her writings can be found in print and online, publications such as Canadian Art, Art Papers, C Magazine, among many more since 2002. Most recently, she held the position as the Artistic Director of Images Festival Toronto between 2015 and 2017. Uh, Edmonton-born Ted Kerr is a Brooklyn-based writer, organizer, and artist whose work focuses on HIV, AIDS, community, and culture. Kerr's writing has appeared in The Village Voice, Women's Studies Quarterly, The New Inquiry, among others. Um... In 2006, he won the Best Journalism Award from *Pause* Magazine for his hyper-allergic article on race, HIV, and art. Kurt earned his MA uh, from Union Theological Seminary, where he researched Christian ethics and HIV. So we're going to go ahead and listen to uh, their talks. Um, it's uh, It'll take us well through the rest of our show, uh, but we're going to come back um, at about quarter two with some information about uh, the different murder cases that are uh, going on and being investigated in Toronto's uh, gay village. So, here we are with their talks.
1: Continue. Uh, it is important to recognize that uh, we are on Treaty 6 territories and um, uh, it's important that We'd be specific, so we're talking about land that is the plains, Wood Cree, Nakoda, Sotu, the Dene people, and the Metis Nation. Um, And Amy, when we were talking about this earlier, invited me to kind of like just don't rush past it, like just think about what that means. And so I also invite you all to think about what it means to hear it too. Uh, It's not just something that goes in one ear and out the other. So thank you for that prompt, and thank you for let me share that and so what we're going to do tonight is i'm going to read two shortish pieces amy's going to read a piece and then uh chris is going to engage us in some historical uh questions historical questions some historical questions Why did you first go to west edmonton mall (laughs) (laughs) and uh and then we'll open it up and have conversation with everyone in this room does that seem like an okay plan
2: So collaborative. But, okay, just to overstress that these are works in progress, where this is like a test reading, Um, so, you know, like, feedback tonight will definitely be, um, I guess, heard and incorporated possibly, (laughs) and these are not final versions, Um, but, like, this reading was also kind of, like, thrown together in a sense that, you know, is very indicative of how we used to work in Edmonton, that we don't have to plan things three to nine months in advance, um, and so we, you know, don't know uh, if there's anything more than just being from Edmonton that's going to tie this together. But, you know, I think is now part of a larger scene and dialogue, let's hope. And we can see where that goes. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice.
1: Okay, so everyone has the zine. Um, so that photo is what I'm talking about here. And the photos on the inside, um, are for you to think about and look more at later if you want. Um... Hi. Hi. Um. So, I'm gonna read two pieces. Like I said, one published recently uh, for Lambda Literary, and one in process. One is kind of more of an overview, a more systemic photo uh, uh, piece, and then the other one is more personal. Um, so here, and if my voice is fine, yeah. You're really red, though.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so in this famous photo, on the right-hand side. A sister's hand cradles the top of her niece's head, covering one ear and drawing a shoulder close. The two look forward, eyelids soft. The niece's left hand is on the hospital bed railing where her uncle, David Kirby, lays. His eyes open, looking out, above and beyond. David's father swaddles his son's head and elbow in his hands, meaty, his eyes closed, nose gentle against his son's forehead. Both David and his father wear watches. Above them, a painted hand beckons forward, the rest of the body cut off by a photographer's eye. To the left, another hand, body unseen, holds David's wrist. The image, David Kirby on his deathbed, Ohio, 1990, was taken by Therese Frere, the spring that David died of complications related to AIDS. Months after, the picture was published in Life magazine. Two years later, it was used for what would become an infamous Benetton clothing ad. The photograph provides an important and familiar narrative, a frail young man dying needlessly before his time. Um, and in that, the picture also contains details and absences that speak to stories and dynamics of the ongoing AIDS crisis largely untold, teetering on the precipice of being lost. The hand on David's wrist belongs to Peta, who the day the photo was taken, invited Therese, a photography student at the time doing a project on AIDS, to follow as Peta did rounds as caregiver at the hospice. Teresa stayed in the hallway as Peta went in to check on David, a friend who was near his final days. Teresa had met David once before and he had given her his permission to be photographed. As Peta visited with David, David's mother invited Teresa into the room, asking her to take photos of what could be their last moments together. On Teresa's contact sheet from that day, which you can view online, Peta's whole body can be seen. Tall with long hair pulled back, wearing a black leather jacket and a comb peeking out of a back pocket of light blue jeans. In Peta, we meet a caregiver from the Pine Ridge Indian Reserve, living with HIV, who, as Therese recalls, rode the line between genders. After David died, the Kirbys made a commitment to care for Peta as death approached, and Therese continued to photograph. In one image, we find Peta in a wheelchair, looking down, hair in braids. David's parents stand behind the sheen of PETA's silky robe midnight against the Kirby's matte white cotton stomachs. Recently a short web documentary, David Kirby on his deathbed, was made about the iconic David Kirby photo, joining the ever-growing body of work looking back at HIV history. My writing partner, Alexandra Uaz and I, call this body of work, the AIDS crisis revisitation, Starting after a period of AIDS-related um, silence emerging after the release of life-saving medication in 1996, the AIDS crisis revisitation begins in 2008 with a notable, noticeable increase in the creation, dissemination, and discussion of culture concerned with the early responses to HIV. The revisitation includes films like How to Survive a Plague, Dallas Buyers Club, exhibitions like Art AIDS America, One Day This Kid Will Get Larger, Tim Murphy's novel, *Christadora*, Alyssa Abbott's memoir, Fairyland, Tiona McLeodin's artwork, A Fixing Ceremony, and the plays 30 Nothing, written by Dan Fishback, and We Should Stand Like This, written by Harrison Rivers. Overall, the revisitation has been positive, carving out space for healing, hearing, and reunion. And yet, as myself and others have noted, there's a narrowness within the revisitation. With a few exceptions within the revisitation, there's an overall absence of people of color, Of black people, of women, of trans people, of rural people, of people who inject drugs, people who do sex work, people who live in poverty, and people who live at the intersection of all these ways of being alive. I see the work coming out of the AIDS crisis, revisitation, and I think, where are all the people? Why am I only seeing different versions of me? It's not that the story of a white gay man in the face of the plague doesn't matter. Of course it does. It's just that we're not the only story. It's not the only story, and in a patriarchal culture of white supremacy, it gets treated like the beginning and the end of the story. I avoided watching this short film on David Kirby, as someone working at the intersection of art, AIDS, and activism. I too, as a white, gay, HIV-negative, middle-class, cis man, have failed to acknowledge PETA. I didn't see PETA's hand there for a long time, and I couldn't bear the thought of the film doing the same thing. But I was provoked into watching it after attending a panel this summer about queer literature and the panelists discussed both the absence and presence of new AIDS-related culture being made. I felt like I needed PETA to be part of the conversation. So sitting one night at a writing residency, I watched the film. Early on PETA appears through photos. I gasped. Would I hear someone other than me and the friend who told me about PETA say PETA's name out loud? No. PETA is never named referred to only as caregiver, and then only in passing. Black feminist ethicist Dr. Tracy West tells us that our ethics form from where the story begins, and our ethics are revealed in our actions, right? So our ethics form where the story begins, and our ethics are revealed in our actions. When you look at the work coming out of the AIDS crisis revisitation, the stories often begin with photos like the one of David Kirby. A white gay man to be pitied, to be feared. And so in this way, isn't Dr. West right? The bulk of our actions in response to HIV have been, and still are, focused on white gay men. So what would it mean if we pulled the camera back and started the story with that which has been obscured, cut off, neglected? What would it mean if we told the story of HIV through PETA, through people whose land has been stolen, through people whose gender and culture is often ignored? What if we told the story of HIV HIV through the visible hand of friendship? HIV is first and foremost a material reality which lives in some people's bodies and not in others. The reasons for this disparity, intimate and systemic in scale. It's also a cultural phenomenon shaped by us in this room and beyond. AIDS is a rolling cultural inheritance, a spectacle that looms overhead, shaping prose, poetry, and desire. As fellow writers, artists, activists, and Edmontonians, I hope you accept this little bit of information I shared with you tonight, and the information I shared about PETA, and transmit it to others, replicating the love without the fear. Thank you. you. Um, So the thinking, some of the thinking that was in this essay will be in a book Um, that my friend Alex and I wrote called AIDS Crisis Revisitation and that will be out from University of Michigan Press um, late 2018, early 2019 depending on how fast we work Um, and uh, yeah and now I'm starting a second major writing project about the second silence, so that period before the AIDS Crisis Revisitation that I think is from 1996 to 2008 um, and as I start on that big writing project, looking at that period between 96 and 2008, I, I think it's important that I think about how did I come to know about HIV? Like, what is the cultural inheritance of HIV that I carry with me that I then transmit forward? Um, and I think it starts here in Edmonton. So I grew up in the shadow of not only HIV, but also West Edmonton Mall and it actually seems to me that there's some connection between West Edmonton Mall and HIV at least in my experience Um, both of them um, helped shape who I wanted to be as a person both of them helped me uh, understand how I was going to get out of my parents house and both kind of um, kind of and gave me desire about the future and most
2: people are scared of it (laughs) but they don't know enough but they don't know enough (laughs) and
1: so here becomes the experimental part or the part in uh, process so uh, here we go Um, I lived much of my youth in the shadow of a spectacle three miles from my parents' house was West Edmonton Mall Ah, I should say this as I'm reading this Feel free to be really loose in your imagination about the cultural phenomenon of AIDS and the cultural phenomenon of West Edmonton Mall and let your mind wander. Sometimes if I'm talking about West Edmonton Mall, feel free to think about your experience with the culture around HIV-AIDS. It's okay. Or you don't have to, Jill. <laughs> I saw you going, no, I'm not going to do that. No malls. <laughs> no malls. <laughs> no malls. Um, yeah. So, I lived much of my youth in the shadow of a spectacle. Three miles from my parents' house was West Edmonton Mall. Built in 1981, it was the world's largest shopping center. It's still the largest in North America, but but now it's only 10th in size worldwide. The mall, West Ed, or WEM as it's called locally, boasts a skating rink, an amusement park, a water park, a chapel, a hotel, hundreds of stores, a bowling alley, movie theaters, and a replica of the Santa Maria. One of the ships Columbus sailed. The boat, which can be rented for special events and movie shoots, is anchored a stone's throw away from the bridge that goes over a man-made lagoon, connecting a strip of skateboarder shops and one of the mall's two food courts. One morning in the winter of 2000, security officers found a man dead in the lagoon. This was the year after another man was stabbed above the skating rink. Word on the street was that the stabbing was gang-related. The man who died in the lagoon fell in the wee hours of the morning after a night of revelry on one of the mall's night, uh, in one of the mall's nightclubs on Bourbon Street, an arm of the mall that at one time was designed to look like the, uh, the famed New Orleans street. The strip used to include statues of women in tight dresses and animal print fur coats with painted fingernails and lacquered hair that chipped over time. These women have been replaced by water fountains. For my seventh birthday, my parents took me and some boys from school on a submarine ride that traveled the depths of the lagoon. It was a slow snaking journey in which you could see the hull of the Santa Maria and tanks where various sea life lived, including the mall's very own dolphins. The large mammals were a major tourist attraction and a site of activism over the years. People would gather around the lagoon on the main floor, look down from the second floor shops or pay extra to sit in the sunken seats close to the tank, all to watch the dolphins jump and high-five their trainer. From almost the beginning of the dolphin's life in Edmonton, there were protests and petitions to free them. This reached a fever pitch in 1996 when a baby dolphin was stillborn in the mall. Six years later, one of the two dolphins died, leaving the remaining one, Howard, the last living dolphin of West Edmonton Mall, to spend his days in the tank alone. He would rarely break the surface of the water during mall hours, a sign of trauma, the activist said. In 2004, as the city slept, Howard was transported to a sea life theater in Florida. For a few years later, the dolphin stage and tank were used as a practice spot for a team of post-pubescent male divers. I remember being in my early twenties standing outside of Clemonico and finding myself at eye level with a curly-haired wet guy standing in his aqua speedo, his chest rising and falling as he steadied himself to jump. On one side of the mall was my parents' house. On the other side, my high school. I could have taken the bus to school, and some days I did, but for the most part I walked. At first I took the most direct route. I would leave my parents' house and make my way to the four-lane roadway, a direct line to the mall. But after a few months I grew bored and started walking as the crow flies, through my neighborhood, cutting through fields and hockey rinks and down residential streets where kids I went to elementary school lived. The route did not save time, it wasn't easier, but it was interesting. Intimate. Walking straight meant West Edmonton Mall was always in front of me. Deviating provided opportunities to feel the curves of my surroundings. As I walked, curiosities bloomed. Who was living now in the house where my one-time girlfriend lived? Would I be able to see the northern lights more clearly from the top of the tobogganing hill? Do people still stash porn near the trash can in the baseball field? The neighborhood revealed itself the slower I walked, the more unusual the choices I made as I walked. While in high school, I started working at the mall. I worked first as a backline cook at Arby's, where my manager's brother helped me get over my fear of razors when he taught me how to shave in the food court washroom. This cured me of using gnar to get my unwanted hairs off my face. <laughs> Later for a decade, I worked at Le Chateau, a once trendy, a trendy fashion, fast fashion retailer. It was the place where students would get their prom dresses, strippers would get their tight t-shirts, and everyone would buy clothes for both their first job interview and upcoming raves. It was a chain store, and across the country it was known as a place where gay people shopped, hung out, and worked. I applied. I wanted to meet gay people. By then, I'd been out for a few years. The summer before high school, I worked at a summer camp, and one day, me and two of the other teacher assistants, both girls, were using hot glue guns to repair crafts the kids had made. We started talking about a TV show we all watched. One of the girls mentioned she had a crush on one of the guys on the show, and I said, so do I. They both started to squeal and snort. One of them dropped a glue gun. I started to laugh, releasing a wicked and freeing yelping sound. Amid the joyous noise, one of the girls screeched, Oh my God, my uncle died of AIDS! Abruptly, we all stopped, and the girl, now red-faced, covered her mouth. Is he dead? I asked. "'No,' she replied, a giggle erupting as she spoke. "'The day before my first shift at the clothing store, "'one of my friends walked me as far as the large statue of a whale's mouth nearby. "'It was a popular makeout spot in the mall, "'since you could go deep into the whale's mouth "'and people walking by could not see you. "'Today,' my friend said, leaning her head against the whale's eyeball, "'you're going to talk to men. Real gay men. You're ready.' "'The way she said it, it wasn't a question. "'But it didn't matter.' The only two other men on staff the first few years I worked there were straight. One was my age and made me nervous whenever we had to pass each other in the crowded (laughs) stockroom. The other was the punk, who I never got to know. He quit a week after I started to go live on a farm in Saskatchewan. Instead, I made friends with my female co-workers. One of my best friends at the time was the assistant manager, ten years older than me. She was divorced with two kids, and later when we worked with more men, she had an affair with one of the star salesmen. We would spend hours at the diner across the street, talking about her situation and imagining the other lives we could have. Other friends on staff were only two or three years older than me, but might as well have been decade my senior. They all seemed like adults to me in ways that seemed unimaginable in my own life. They had sex and drove cars. They went to college and had an abortion. They paid credit card bills and lived on their own. From them, I learned about music, books, men, and grew accustomed to going for coffee and taking in secondhand smoke. They shaped my worldview. They were alternative, but they taught me how to reject both the mainstream ideas and how to function within them. After the mall closed and we had to clean the store, we would often stand around a sale bin folding $3 t-shirts, cracking jokes and sharing secrets. I didn't have much to contribute, but they never seemed to mind. I just folded my section, taking it all in. On the way home, long past sunset, walking past the parking lot, I first kissed another man, the corner store where I could never bring myself to steal candy, and the secret paths near the apartment, in, uh, and the secret paths through the apartments near the school. I would think about everything they said, feeling further away from a future, but closer to adulthood, the moonlight shining on the mystery of what lay before me. Thank you. Thanks, Amy.
2: Uh, So, I guess a small introduction, I, like Ted Kerr, used to live in Edmonton. Um, I I think we left within a year of each other, maybe even months, um, which was in 2011, I want to say. When I was here, I used to write about art a lot, and that's kind of carried forward through my entire last 10 years. I also started organizing and curating and all these things. But uh, this this text that I'm working on is trying... It's not like a revisitation of my own um, art career, but it's kind of like trying to uh, re-examine what it is that I actually saw in the mm-hmm. last 15 years. Um, yeah, I guess like one way to describe it is that it's a really long land acknowledgement um I with the story that I'm about to read um it begins kind of where I when I left um which was when I was doing a show called they made a day be a day here I believe one of the artists is actually even here Brenda Draney um there's catalogs that I brought that you can take oh great they're free and they're just please take them, or else Michelle will have to deal with them. (laughs) But they're they're quality products. Um, uh, Yeah, I guess I'm going to begin there. It's less about Edmonton than you think, but, you know, we'll talk about it later. Between 2007 and 2011, Amy drove thousands of kilometers between Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba crisscrossing between Treaty 1 through 8 territories. She was researching for a group exhibition that spoke to her experience of the plains, a narrative that neither romanticized the prairies nor followed the region's mid-20th century art history as a modernist haven. Both of these established narratives followed a specific logic. the land, the wind, and everything in between had to be claimed and mastered before it could enter the realm of the nation-state's comprehension. Having spent the majority of her life between two British colonies, Amy had yet to understand the complexities of settlers and colonization. Instinctively, because history books and their authors and teachers were inadequate, She searched for the role that women played in homesteading this region, and extending this perspective into contemporary art, she brought together 12 female artists from the three plain provinces, who more or less had never heard of each other. Mm -hmm. The majority of artists in the They Made a Day Be a Day Here exhibition had roots in Manitoba, predominantly stemming from Winnipeg, Most provinces have at least two major cities competing against each other for for, for, uh, provincial resources and universal subsidies. But Winnipeg had a lion's share all to herself. Mm. Brandon came in a distant second, at almost a tenth of Winnipeg's population base. Amy had only visited Brandon once, and that was enough. Brief and extended visits to Treaty 1 would be entirely consumed by Winnipeg activities. For most of this time, and certainly before, the city has carried a reputation as a rough place where its racism and poverty have nowhere to hide. It's been a place where you can see a guy bleeding out on a city bus because he's been stabbed and can't afford to call an ambulance or even take a cab to the hospital. Amy has seen teenage moms with fresh black eyes, bruises on their arms, weighed down by kids, without any empathy from surly and impatient public servants who have seen this all before. Those struck hardest by poverty and violence are almost always indigenous peoples, and nobody bats an eye, just business as usual along the Red River. Hmm. Winnipeg and Edmonton used to compete for the title of murder city capital. Amy always talked about doing a show with that title with Winnipeg artist and curator Shauna Dempsey, but nothing ever materialized beyond that title. Back in 2008 or 2009, they never considered that Winnipeg and Edmonton had the two highest urban populations of Indigenous and Métis peoples in the country. They never consciously connected the statistics of violence in their respective cities' populations to the breakdown of the systems holding together the myth of Canada. Their show idea failed from the very beginning, but it gave them enough reason to keep talking. When Amy came through Winnipeg in 2017 after a three-year absence, she noticed a slight difference in the air. In the district of Fort Rouge, where she was staying, Anishinaabe activist and public broadcaster Wab Canoe was now the district's MLA and the leader of the Manitoba New Democratic Party. For the first time ever in the province's history, almost a third of the NDPs in Manitoba were of indigenous heritage. The first time Amy stayed in Fort Rouge, she remembers having to sidestep a pool of blood on the sidewalk on her way to dinner. Ten years years later, on the very same street, her most discomforting decisions were between choosing nail polish colors for her deluxe Manny and Betty. They say nostalgia is a dangerous thing, especially for those with no futures. Nostalgia exists within the confines of how good something used to be, whether it was a place, a relationship, or a meal. But was it ever really that good? The Prairies and Winnipeg specifically brings out in Amy nostalgia for a life that was never hers. In a play she sees in Toronto, her friend Maggie as Betty narrates from a truck stop in Terrace Bay, Ontario. Betty is literally and figuratively stuck in a past waiting for a future that never comes. She warns us, She warns us all that conservatism is nostalgia for a past that never existed. On her last weekend in Winnipeg, Amy is picked up by Shauna and her girlfriend Wanda for a whirlwind tour of Eats and errands. Wanda met Shauna at a Pride event in Thompson, Manitoba, where she was playing with her band, and where Shauna, with an infallible sense of directions, wandered through a random door into the backstage area. (laughs) Three years later, they pick Amy up at Sarah's house so they can ogle their dream house next door. Tucked into a corner lot backing into the Assiniboine, Amy had never noticed she was staying so close to the river. On the way to Winnipeg, she had read in her in-flight magazine that the river system is the best way to travel through cities like Winnipeg, Ottawa, Quebec City, and Edmonton. Considering that these cities were built around active fur trade routes between indigenous nations and Europeans that developed over hundreds of years, it's a wonder that the rivers remain so underused. It's like ignoring a house's central staircase, but opting to use the scaffolding outside to get up and down the place. Later, when the three of them floated down the Ascena Boing on a water bus tour, Shauna points out the back lot of her and Wanda's dream house. Mm-hmm. They also see three young deers roaming through the bush and the beginnings of a beaver dam. When the tour is over, Amy has a chance to stand along the riverbank where the Assiniboine and the Red River meet. The water is as murky as mud in the Assiniboine, but slightly more green in the red. Their two streams merge with an effortless force, each remaining distinct from the other. They had begun their day with the first of many meals. This is what Shauna and Amy do best together. The first time they went for coffee, Shauna ordered half a pound of shaved prosciutto alongside a custard-filled long john from the Italian bakery in Edmonton. That meal set a tone. Mm. On the sunny day in Winnipeg, the three of them dig into some fried salami and smoked tongue sandwiches at Sherbrooke's delicatessen. Shauna orders her tongue with a smear of liver pate and Amy doubles her sandwich fillings. Within her first bite, she immediately regrets her choice, but memories taste better when you forget them. Shauna has a long itinerary plan for the day, and after lunch, they drive over to Nietzsche Commons, an indigenous-run space that functions as a grocery store, restaurant, art gallery, and community center. Nietzsche-Commons is where Anishinaabe artist Rebecca Belmore worked on her bead and ceramic commission, the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. Amy thinks about going to this museum, but she never does. The CMHR has only been talked about in terms of its architecture for the longest time, until controversy started about what was and wasn't acknowledged inside its walls. The CMHR had refused to use the word genocide in relation to Canada's treatment of Indigenous peoples. Considering the museum sits at the mouth of where the Assiniboine and Red Rivers meet, on the founding of Canada on the blood of the Red River settlements, people were rightfully offended. The building has been a dream project of the Aspers, once major newsprint publishers in Canada. Who wanted to build a Canadian museum to commemorate Holocaust survivors. As Belmore has said in an interview, she was interested in making a blanket composed of individual beads where each bead was made from the clay dug up from the Red River Valley. Each bead reveals a tactile imprint of the many different hands that have worked on its surface over the years at Nietzsche Commons. Pointedly titled Trace. The work is a tangible accumulation, an embodied reminder of how we shape this land when we work together. We all have to live someplace, sometimes with those who have tried stealing from you, and sometimes with those you have stolen from. It has also been quipped to Amy that the CMHR is a whole lot of building for our website. She would rather visit the grocery store at Ichikame, but arrives half an hour before they're open. Shana is visibly disappointed as their day is packed and they can't wait around (laughs) in this empty parking lot. Amy doesn't know Wanda very well, but she gets a sense that she's uncomfortable. Maybe it was the fried salami talking, but something changed when they drove into the north end. But Wanda wasn't uncomfortable. She had a heavy heart. Shanna later tells Amy that Wanda's relative had just been stabbed that weekend on Main Street. He didn't survive. From the backseat of the car, Amy hears bits and pieces of their conversation about how their family histories are intertwined. Shauna clarifies that their families did not directly know one another, but that Wanda's people, the Swampy Cree, signed Treaty 5 in 1875 in Norway House on her mother's side, and in 1876 in the Paz on her father's side. Treaty signings were taken seriously by Indigenous nations, and it is almost certain Wanda's great-great-great-grandparents would have been present. Shauna's great-grandfather, Joseph Dempsey, the last to flee from Ireland's famine, arrived in Treaty 1 territory in 1877, seven years after Hudson Bay Company sold off Rupert's land to Canada, starting an avalanche of hostile land grabs. Dempsey initially worked digging out basements in Winnipeg by shovel before walking over 150 kilometers to Treaty 5 territory to lay claim to 320 acres of land near present-day Carberry for a $20 registration fee in 1878. It would be the first year that land in that region was made available to settlers for the price of farming the soil which of the newly formed country of Canada outweighed the promises to leave Indigenous nations and land alone except through fair and legal treaties as outlined in the Rural Proclamation of 1763. Treaty five made it possible for Shauna's great grandfather to take quote unquote free land and to farm it at the dispossession of Indigenous sovereignty. In this way, the stories of Shauna and Wanda's family are linked. When, uh, with mnemonic directions from Shawna, Wanda drives them outside of city limits and west on Highway 1. Driving past headingly Wanda tells her passengers that for every 15 wooden posts on these straight and narrow highways, the distance spanned amounts to a kilometer, or 19 posts to a mile. Standard measurement elsewhere is 40 posts to a mile, but Manitoba has always been different. They pull over on the side of an unassuming road to get a closer look at what appears at first to be a small stack of stones, like a tomb. A small stone cairn had been erected to commemorate the Dominion's first stake of measuring land in 1871, which opened the floodgates for settlement and expansion. Its significance is a measuring system, otherwise known as the Land Survey, was the key mechanism towards parceling out the prairies for non-indigenous settlement. When Louis Riel famously put his foot on the surveyor's chain in 1869, his gesture was considered the first step in the Red River resistance. Within the first with the first stake planted, Riel knew it was the beginning of the end. The Cairns plaque flatly reads: the first marker of the Dominion Land Survey was placed the July 10, 1871 on the principal meridian, about half a mile south of the site. The system, then inaugurated by Lieutenant Colonel J.S. Dennis, Surveyor General, extends across the prairies into the Pacific coast, embracing more than 200 million acres of surveyed lands in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and parts of British Columbia. To date, Indigenous lands south of the 60th parallel add up to less than one-half of 1% of Canada's land mass. That's 0.2 percent no, 0.02%, 0.2%. Because of the unique script system put into place, Metis and Manitoba are still fighting for their rightful use of the land that had been negotiated and then stolen, sold out unwillingly, and then fraudulently acquired. By eighteen twelve, the Dominion needed settlers to defend the crown from the United States, and land was surveyed and parceled to incoming waves of European immigrants looking to survive and prosper. Settlers flooded westward, and systematic protocols to contain and eradicate indigenous communities became a state department. Shauna and Wanda have come out here before. This cairn is a monument to the founding of Manitoba and the settlement of Canada. It is history, and this history is far from over. Having already been to his grave in St. Boniface in different points in each of their lives, they instead drive over to Riel's house, located along the Red River. Riel's wife and kids had lived in the house for a time when they had nowhere else to go, but Riel himself had never lived there. The house was designated a national historic site 94 years after the Canadian government had him hanged for treason, and where his body was laid out in the main room of his small house for over 10,000 people to pay their respects. Parks Canada now cares for this property, frozen in a macabre time frame, with a full garden and teenagers dressed up in period costumes to emulate the year following Riel's execution in Regina coated is how Canada was founded on the settlement of the west joining upper and lower Canada to the vast tracts of resource-rich country which also meant they had to get through the metis of the Red River valley under Riel's provisional government the metis fought for their fight fought for the right to preserve their own land documented in the Manitoba act of 1870. These rights still have never been fully honored by the Canadian government in 2017. Crushing Riel's government was deemed essential for the land measuring and colonization to continue and essential for Canada to be formed. His death by treason can be arguably viewed as a warning shot to any further rebellions. It's almost done. At his place of death in year 150 of the country's confederation, Amy could still overhear some questionable facts being doled out to a white man with a big camera by a white teenager in a bonnet. A small rotting buffalo hide was hanging along the fence, presumably to make the grounds more authentic to non-Indigenous visitors. It was a muggy day, and the costumed teenagers in their layers of scratchy wool were cooling themselves in the shade leaving no one tending the gift shop basket of handmade Métis sashes to bake in the sun. Mm -hmm. Amy wanders out past the yard, following Shauna into the garden to pick raspberries in the last of the afternoon heat. The river River lots were lush and fertile farming lands, designed after the narrow French Canadian river lot style, with individualized access to the river, making each Métis farm home self-sustaining, at least until the Hudson Bay Company sold off all their land to Ottawa, right off from under them. With the raspberries wetting their appetite and the day starting to wane, Shana's last stop for them, it was a long day, was at the Forks for an early dinner and a boat ride. It was a Sunday, so children ran wild and families aired out. Parents and grandparents are, like, exhausted but happy. As the three of them tucked into their piping hot and golden-fried pickerel and chips, Shana recalls the last time she and Wanda ate a Furby's was during Winnipeg Pride. There they met Riley, a two-spirited guy who happily accepted the invitation from two strangers to join them at their dinner table. The only seat left in the room was for Riley. Digging into her mound of salted and vinegar chips on fake newsprint, Wanda fondly recalls meeting Riley, who comes down here every year for pride. After collecting enough empties, he treats himself to a serving of fish and chips from Fergie's. He said that doing so made him taste home, and everyone needs a sense of home. Wanda remembers that as he said this, the two of them shared a look, giving each other a nod of acknowledgement, and both cracking the smallest smiles. Mm
0: -hmm hey we're just we're gaywire and we're listening to a little uh of jen grant's song dreamer before that, we were listening to the spoken uh, word pieces of Ted Grant, uh, sorry, Ted Kerr and Amy Fung, um, who were speaking at the event, a brief and unreli- unreliable history that took place on January 17th at DC3 Art Projects. Uh, so we just have a couple more minutes, um, and I wanted to make sure to give a little bit of an update on uh, the cases that are taking place in Toronto. Um, in which uh, police have stated that they have evidence suggesting um, that the deaths and disappearances of at least two men in Toronto's gay neighbourhood, um, Selim Essen and Andrew Kinsman, um, are connected to the same person, and that is Bruce MacArthur. Uh, Bruce was charged with first-degree murder in connection with Essen and Kinsman's deaths uh, last week. Um, And police are, uh, and media outlets are uh, suggesting that there have been more connections, um, at least two more connections to the same person, uh, two missing people, and possibly two two more uh, murders connected to the same people. Both men were reported missing um, from the downtown area within 45 days of each other. Their bodies have not yet been found. The men, along with the suspect, were known to frequent Church Wellesley Village, And police stated that they believe MacArthur is responsible for the deaths of other men, though they did not say how many other other victims they were looking for. They also did not say who or what led them to that conclusion, and no additional charges have been laid against the suspect. Uh, The suspect has been under surveillance for some time when he allegedly attempted to enter an auto wrecking yard, presumably to have his vehicle destroyed. And police intercepted him and found blood in the trunk of his vehicle, according to sources. The blood evidence was then used to obtain a search warrant of his apartment in Thorncliffe Park Drive, and in the apartment, the source said police allegedly located evidence for four homicides, including the alleged murders of Essen and Kinsman. Um, MacArthur MacArthur appeared in College Park courtroom just before 10 a.m. last week. Uh, He said nothing and was ordered remanded into custody until his next appearance. Um... To give you sort of a little bit of uh, this news, talking to different people in the community um, seems uh, shocking and to have come out of nowhere for a lot of people, um, and it's also obviously very scary. Um, It should be noted that um, these disappearances have been uh, going on for a number of years, um, involving uh, another man named um, Skandajar Navaratan, um, who disappeared in 2010, and community members suspect that he might also be Connected to this same suspect. And so, community activists, family members, and friends in the area have been uh, contacting Toronto Police Service to report these things. Many community members um, sort of were drawing their own connections between the different men that were disappearing and were urging Toronto Police Service to do something about it. Uh, Community members have since since expressed um, frustration um, over the fact that the police were seeming to do very little um, or were not taking the fact that people within the community have intimate knowledge of how the community works and who's connected to whom um, were saying that these disappearances seem to be very um, like eerily connected to each other. Uh, There's also different activists who have been saying things like, obviously, over the summer, there's been a huge um, debate and fight in Toronto about whether police should be um, allowed in pride parades. And the police fought with the Toronto Police, or sorry, with Toronto Pride and with Black Lives Matter Toronto about being allowed to be in the pride parade. And activists are now saying that maybe Toronto Police Service should have spent a little more more time actually trying to protect the LGBTQ community instead of insisting that they belong in their pride parade. It also should be noted that uh, the community within Toronto did a lot of the work that the police weren't, including um, finding evidence, compiling evidence, holding press conferences, holding town halls, trying to um, make different people in the community feel safe and trying to collect this information um, so that one day it could be used by people who can do something about it. So next week, we're going to um, continue gathering information about this case and what's ongoing Going um, because it seems like uh, daily there's new information that is released um, about the suspects and or sorry the suspect and also um, different people who have gone missing in the neighborhood. Um, and there's also reaction from community members who are um, obviously and justifiably uh, quite frustrated with how things have been handled, including the fact that um, it wasn't um, the police as, as late as December in Toronto didn't uh, label this as a serial um, killer situation. And people are now saying that um, it, it might very well be. So, again, we'll bring you more information about all of that uh, next week.